Hello, uh, I'm Simon King, and this is Nature Space with Hates. Uh, today, we're going to be taking a more detailed look at avian flu, finding out a little bit more about what is avian flu. I'm going to be asking a very good friend of uh, Hates, Professor Johnny Cooper, who's who knows a lot about this subject. So if you're sat with a cup of tea or a coffee, sit down, concentrate on this, and we'll give you some uh, really good take-homes to put any fears aside, hopefully, for you. And so you can find out what the best thing to do for your feathered friends is. So as I say, we're sat with talking to Professor Johnny Cooper. John's our veterinary advisor. He's a specialist. And hopefully, John, if I can put you yes. in the hot seat, you can tell me a little bit more about this subject. And so let's have a look. What is avian flu, please? Thank you, Simon. Can I say, first of all, I think it's it's uh, great that Hayes has decided to do this because there is a lot of misunderstanding amongst the public and presumably amongst um, clients, customers of Hayes and others about what this disease is and what they as responsible members of the community with an interest in birds might be able to do to reduce its spread and its effect on our wild and indeed captive bird populations. Well, as far as um, avian influenza is concerned, Avian influenza is one, there's several types of avian influenza. They are part of the big family of influenza viruses. There are four main groups, A, B, C, and D. And the only ones that concern us here are influenza group A. And those are the viruses that can affect birds. And, and many of them, the, the, the ones that are not highly pathogenic, Listeners may see the, the term HPAI, that means highly pathogenic avian influenza, which is the one that's killing um, birds at the moment. But there are other ones. There's the low pathogenic avian influenza, LPAI, uh, which causes either no uh, signs of disease or only mild disease, even in poultry and certainly in wild birds. So we are thinking about uh, one of the highly pathogenic strains of the avian influenza virus. Uh, it is not the same as human influenza, the one that um, older people like myself have had vaccination against. It's related to it, but there's no similarity. Although very, very, very occasionally a human can actually contract this HPAI because they perhaps work in the poultry industry or whatever. So that's what it is. It's a virus. It's one that spreads easily from bird to bird and occasionally from birds to other species. It dies fairly quickly in the environment. And therefore, it's a matter of when birds are close together that it, that it spreads so easily. That's really helpful. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of where we stand in the UK at the moment, uh, obviously, uh, what I want to try and understand is what is the current advice? Uh, what should we be telling our customers that they can do and do safely. And I suppose it would be interesting to know about if we continue to feed the birds, and hopefully we will, what can we do in order to mitigate some of the challenges? And I'm thinking, hopefully, that many of the things that we should be doing in order to, to protect birds and ourselves are things that we should be doing all the time, actually, in terms of cleaning bird feeders, washing our hands regularly in our own our own hygiene and so on. So, but uh, over to you, what yes. should we be doing? Well, first of all, just to endorse what you said, that last point, it's it's the routine hygiene that Haith's has promoted for many, many years, as have other organisations, and which you and I, Simon, have talked about in lectures and, and dealing with members of the public and so on. 
I would like to say for your uh, listeners that there are, of course, many websites that do give you the up-to-date information about um, HPAI, avian flu. Uh, all of these are on the Gov UK band of websites, uh, which I'm sure Hayes could provide the the links to uh, customers easily. I can send them to you, and you can you can forward the, to any anyone who contacts you who's concerned. The situation is that the first thing I must say is that HPAI, this form of avian influenza, is a notifiable disease. In other words, it has to be reported to the government to DEFRA if it's in captive birds, and the emphasis is on captive birds. Therefore, any birds, it doesn't have to be poultry, which are particularly affected and tend to be killed by this virus, any birds that are in captivity are covered by the regulations that, as I say, are available and we can send them to people. If a free living birds, I prefer that word to wild birds, I mean wild birds, but they're free living birds, birds in the garden, birds out in the forest, birds on moorland, etc. It's not notifiable in those. So even if wild birds do become sick, and it might be HPAI, avian influenza, there is no responsibility on members of the public to report it. Many do because they're concerned about wild birds looking sick or dying. But those, but they don't have to by law. There's also no regulations at present, but obviously anything could change with this disease in a week's time, perhaps, but not at the moment. There is nothing in British law, English, Scottish, uh, Welsh, Northern Irish law that says you can't feed wild birds. You are permitted to do so. What people have done for years and do very responsibly in most cases can continue as far as the law is concerned. But I think you're right to draw attention to the fact that it means that we must be very be very careful about how we feed those birds, because one of the arguments amongst those who say, well, should we still be encouraging bird feeders, putting food out for wild birds, etc., is that it does encourage birds to congregate. And any species of bird that congregates is more likely either to pick up the virus or to transmit it. So quite apart from the hygiene, uh, my advice would be to feed with what I'm calling feed sensibly and with sensitivity. The sensibly means thinking about how I'm doing it. So don't put excess food out on bir in bird feeders and so on. Put smaller amounts out for a little while so that birds take their fill and there's not uh, surplus uh, seed that, or whatever it is that, that is being scattered which might be picked up by other species of bird or even mammals that might spread the virus. So the sensible bit is what most of your listeners and most of your customers will do already, which is to feed with a bit of common sense. They will have read what uh, uh, Hase has said and some of the other organisations about um, how to put the food out, when to put the food out, and as you said, about hygiene, the cleaning of containers and bird tables, etc. The second bit, though, I would suggest is people should feed with sensitivity. And that is different from sensibly. What I mean by sensitivity is remembering that some people's livelihoods are at stake here in Norfolk from where I'm speaking. There are poultry farms galore, all locked up at the moment, etc, etc. And therefore, for example, if anyone listening to this podcast does feed birds, they should make sure they do it only in their own garden, their own backyard, whatever they have, 
And they must, first of all, ascertain that they haven't got neighbours who've got one or two backyard chickens or a couple of ducks, because that could be dangerous. But that won't be the case uh, usually. And therefore, I would recommend that people continue feeding birds um, in their garden, etc., etc. But as I say, to do it sensibly and with sensitivity. But I would add to that, and I'm sure it goes without saying, that people, members of the public, should not be taking food to the local duck pond or the local stretch of river, which we have here in Norfolk, thinking, oh, I might see something interesting like, um, I don't know, golden eyes or whatever it happens to be or, or tufted ducks or whatever, and I'll take some food with me. Do not feed anything outside your own property because there is a danger that something might pick it up and ducks are an example that can be killed very easily. Right. Okay. So, so really, in terms of sensibly and sensitivity, we, I think, we've always tried to put a sensible message out in terms of how much food. There is absolutely no point in piling a, a heap of food onto a bird table that could take two weeks, three weeks for it to be consumed. You know that the, the lens we go to here, John at Hayes. You put a, a quality control process in, into our business that we're very, very proud of. However, you know, all that good can be undone if a food is just left on a bird table for weeks to obviously rot. Um, oh, absolutely, So yeah. sensibly makes sense. Nice, clean, fresh food. People are coming to Hayes for, the, for that reason. So keep it locked away safely. Present perhaps what could be consumed within a day or possibly yes. over a couple of days. So, and that's nice because it's an opportunity to keep visiting the feeding stations. Are they clean? So take that opportunity while you're being sensible, that precautionary principle. Does the feeder look clean? Does the bird table look clean? Perhaps uh, invest in some, uh, some hygiene. We have a couple of disinfectants that are very sympathetic to bird feeders and bird tables. Yes. Give them a hose down. I think you've talked before in, in the past about a kettle of boiling water. Obviously, I don't want our customers going outside and, and tripping over and, and scalding themselves. But I, I there's was still in, power in, I was in, in, big trouble in, from in boiling water, Simon I King, I was in big trouble over that. So I'm going to amend that advice and say, get yourself a thermos flask, <laughs> put boiled, <laughs> boiling water in it, and then totter out, as I would have to, because I've got a bit of arthritis at the moment, to your bird table and pour that onto the table just so that hot water is scalding the surface and indeed underneath it. I'm a great believer in hot water, but uh, having said that, um, you've got disinfectants. There are other ones available. If it bleaches a particularly effective uh, disinfectant against um, uh, influenza viruses, but most um, commonly available disinfectants will kill it. Um, yes, the hot water is a sort of extra. It's a sort of John Cooper gesture because I rather like doing these things, uh, but, but it does help kill the virus. Uh, but I think if, if um, listeners feel they might be able to um, increase the frequency of their cleaning of their bird table, their bird feeders, that might be sensible. It's not possible for everyone. Many older people, of course, don't have the time or the physical ability to do that. So they should just continue as they are with regular cleaning, but not necessarily every day. And I think the other point about a surplus feeding is so easily food can end up underneath the bird feeder. There's a place near here in Norfolk, I won't say where it is, where I say regularly to the people that not only should they use Haith's food, because they tend to buy bird diets from wherever they can get it, which is not a very sensible idea. As, as you've said, we have a quality control program at Haith's, 
but they also insist that they feed more than they think the birds need because they say, oh, later in the afternoon, blackbirds and other species come and feed on it and occasionally we get a moorhen. Well, that's just the sort of thing you don't want. Just put enough out for the bird that come to your um, to your bird table, whether it's uh, finches, sparrows, tits of different types, blue tits, great tits, whatever it happens to be. Uh, that's part of the doing it sensibly. The other thing I'd like to say, people who are conscientious who are feeding birds, and most of your listeners will come into that category by definition, uh, can also play a small part because if wild birds do pick up the virus, one of the first signs is they don't eat so much. They um, perhaps either don't drink at all or they drink much more than you would expect. And anyone who's interested in recording what comes to their feeder, the species might also record the extent to which they're feeding, drinking and so on. We don't know at the moment. Vets like myself are keen to collect data on wild birds, the smaller birds that bird feeders are, are provide for. But any information about wild birds on feeders and so on is very, very useful. And who knows, it might be a clue as to whether um, the, the, the smaller wild birds are in fact being affected by this virus. It's quite possible, Simon, that they have picked up the virus. I say it's possible, not necessarily probable, but are not, but are not killed by it because many species of bird uh, can be infected and they either don't show clinical signs, which is the posh word for symptoms in, in birds, or they just live with the virus. But that means they can still possibly spread it. So the wild birds in the garden might be harboring the virus. They might be spreading the virus. But the general indications at the moment are that they are not. The important birds are the waterfowl, the ones that migrate to Britain and to other countries from, from the north at this time of year. Uh, and seabirds, of course, your listeners will know that large numbers of seabirds have, have, have died um, from HVAI, from, from avian flu around our coasts. And this is a big concern from the conservation point of view. So let me just say, repeat the point that the government official advice about dead wild birds, dead or dying wild birds, is that you do not want, number one, if they're free living in the wild, you do not have to report it. That's entirely up to you. But if you are concerned, then there's a phone number, a DEFRA phone number, an 03459 number. I'll give the rest, 335577. They encourage members of the public to call DEFRA on that number if anyone finds one or more dead birds of prey, because hawks and uh, and, and falcons and so on can contract it, probably from what they're feeding on. Three or more dead gulls or wild waterfowl, that's swans, geese and ducks. And I'd like to add waders to that because they're all waterfowl in the broader sense. But they do say five or more dead birds of any species. So listeners might consider if they actually saw many sick birds or had five or more deaths, they might report it to DEFRA because they would like to know whether this virus is spreading further than it has already. But they do add to this particular point on the website. This is DEFRA, or if you like, APHA, that's the Animal Plant and Health uh, Agency. You do not need to report any other found dead wild birds. And they repeat, bird flu is not a notifiable disease in wild birds. So in truly wild birds, truly free living ones, no one listening to this podcast need report 
disease or um, or or death if it's in in wild free living birds. That's that's really good. That's really helpful to to hear. I think anybody listening to this will be really uh, encouraged by the news that, as you said, you know there is no need for us to stop feeding uh, wild free living birds at the moment. With those caveats of being sensible of the sensitivity issues, and actually, you know, we wouldn't put food. Obviously, as as a veterinary pathologist, John, you, you would say to us, well, you wouldn't put food if we were feeding a dog. Uh, we wouldn't put enough food down for a dog for a week, would we? Uh, yeah, we just absolutely. wouldn't. And so yeah. why should we do it? I'm, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but why Why would we do it for wildlife, I think, is, is, no, you're absolutely is what right. I'm thinking, really, from what you've just said. And, you, and you've got me thinking, really, you know, in, in, uh, in my garden, you know, perhaps, you know, I also put a little food down on the floor, on the ground. And perhaps what I might do is concentrate my efforts more on the bird feeder, which I know I can clean more regularly. It's easier to clean than just leaving seeds on the ground. Uh, I have a bird table. Well, I'm still controlling the, the feeding area, so we can make sure that's kept clean afterwards. Perhaps mm. um, in, in between or every couple of days, I may make sure any, anything beneath the feeder, uh, some of our foods, for example, have the, the husk may fall to the ground. Perhaps I may even look at one or two of our foods that have no waste. Uh, so therefore, yes. uh, when birds uh, eat them from the feeder, nothing is on the ground. Uh, nothing will fall to the ground, or at least if it does, it can be consumed very quickly rather than left to spend time and uh, and go moldy as a waste husk on the ground. So you're making me think about how I might be able to adjust, not ditch, but adjust some of the things I do in order to be more sensible, in order to be extra sensitive during what is a sensitive period for for birds and because of avian influenza at the moment. But the yeah. takeaway for me is still to keep feeding the birds. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. And I, I think it's good, actually, in, a, in one sense, uh, what you've said and what it will lead to, because it means that we are reviewing how people feed wild birds. And the good advice that Haste has given over several years, and I've played a small part in that, uh, which is to do everything sensibly and to a certain extent with moderation because the, the, the food is of good quality and therefore it's, people should use it in, a, in an economic way. That advice is being refined as a result of avian flu. And what you've been saying about hygiene and being perhaps a bit careful about food on, on the ground, I think is probably good common sense at the best of times, but uh, particularly so at present. I'd just like to throw in also, apropos what I mentioned earlier, these people here in Norfolk who think that surplus uh, bird food on the ground is great. Uh, I myself have observed rodents, rats going there later in the day. And we don't think that rodents um, are infected in the sense of getting clinical disease, uh, clinical avian flu, but they might be able to transmit it. So it's yet another reason for discouraging surplus food and husks and things like that which of course rodents will take but many of your diets don't have or some of your diets don't have husks so we ought to think about mammals as well that might pick it up even dogs and cats might do so and it is possible this virus could infect them but we've no evidence that it produces clinical disease the other argument for continuing to feed wild birds is i think that we don't want to change the behavior patterns of the birds that at this time of year, it's November, are coming into people's gardens, are welcoming the food that is being put out and are benefiting from it. 
And I say that because th- there was a paper in the um, internationally renowned journal Nature uh, earlier this year, in May, actually, by um, about the whole question of avian flu and why it was so prevalent um, and, and why it's so virulent. You must remember this particularly virulent form of influenza A was only first recognized by vets in 1996, you know, two generations ago. Birds were carrying flu viruses, but they weren't being killed in large numbers. But coming back to the article in Nature, and I've, I've got the reference if any, any uh, readers, listeners want to hear about it. This came from the United States originally, where it was suggested at one stage, I, I mean, this is abhorrent to me, that some wild birds might actually be killed, controlled to prevent the spread of the virus. And they were thinking about, as they call them, the Americans called backyard birds. Well, that suggestion was strongly denounced in a, an authoritative comment in, in this particular paper by a veterinary epidemiologist at the World Organization for Animal Health, which is an international organization. Uh, and she said it could make the situation even worse because any attempt to, in this particular case, I'm afraid to kill birds, but it could apply also to any other disturbance could, as she put it, it would disrupt wild bird movements and behaviours, helping the virus spread further, end of quotation. Now, I argue that if that's the case in the context of this draconian idea, which has obviously now been dismissed, of, of killing wild birds, it probably is true. I can't prove it, but it seems likely it's true uh, at the more modest level of the birds that come to someone's garden, the, the tits, the finches, the blackbirds, the starlings, whatever it is that come regularly, if one stopped feeding them, they would have to go further afield to look for the food on which some of them do actually depend. If if we disrupt the patterns that they are familiar with, the patterns that a good observer, a nature detective, if you like, looking out of the window, as I am at the moment, spots in birds that are coming to a feeder, if we disrupt that behaviour, they will go further afield And in so doing, it seems to me possible that they might spread the virus or come into contact with other birds, uh, water birds being an example, that uh, are harbouring the virus. So I would say the first argument for feeding birds is wild birds is it's very good for birds and it's very good for people. The second argument for continuing to feed them is that it's not illegal. And if done sensibly and with sensitivity, it will not contribute in any significant way to the spread of this terrible virus. And I'd like to throw in the third reason, which is the one I've just said. If this lady at the World Organization for Animal Health is correct, and she should be, she's a veterinary epidemiologist, then anything that upsets the behavioral patterns of birds in our gardens is possibly going to spread the virus. Sorry, that's a long-winded story, but I hope the the last three points are are, are of some help to, to listeners. I think that's more than helpful because my greatest fears really are that there was a, a biological conservation report that you were kind enough to send to me which was talking about the provisioning of wildlife food and, and, and how it helps or hinders biodiversity conservation efforts, which in other words, you know, is feeding the birds good for birds or not? But what, what I take away from that paper is how good feeding the wild birds potentially is for nature. You know, it increases the fitness of birds. Birds are more productive and when they're healthy. Uh, the offspring survival rates are greater. There's less chance of starvation and health issues. 
And but also you mentioned humans, John, and and absolutely what's come across crystal clear in the last two years, if not longer, is how much being connected with with nature and wildlife, how much it gives to us as humans. So we know that watching and feeding wildlife is a vital link to nature and it helps people stay connected with the natural world. But also it's good, it's better, it helps our well-being and it helps our mental health and it helps us relax. And if there's anything we need to do at the moment, it's relax. It is a challenging time out there economically, politically and beyond. I don't want to ditch the hard work that we, and, and I don't just say hates, I mean yourself who've been a, a naturalist for a very long time and, and at some point in a couple of weeks' time, for those listening, you'll get to hear Professor Cooper talk quite a lot more about the science behind bird keeping. But also, I'm going to invite John. He doesn't know yet, but I'm going to invite John to come and talk a little bit more about uh, about his uh, backstory and where it all started. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you that he's got he's got links to to the Secret Service, to MI5, and all sorts of wonderful. In fact, uh, 007. It, let's whet your appetite. Let's it, say that it'll we, bore them. Uh, you're tears. listening to one of the closest living links to 007. No, it won't. <laughs> a, living, it's, a living fossil. People... A living fossil, as my grandchildren say. <laughs> As you say, it's not illegal. It's no. not illegal, and and if done sensibly, sensitive, uh, sensitively, we need to keep doing this. But the point I hadn't really thought about at all is that by changing that those habits, by some some wildlife will be unable to travel a little further uh, for food, which could actually create major issues for them themselves. But those wild, free living birds can take flight. They can now travel into other areas looking for food. And now yeah. we've got potentially an even greater risk of spreading the virus. So we need to keep some stability in what we do. I mean, if I can use a human example, it's when refugees move from one place to another that diseases become a problem. Most societies, whether it's Western ones yes. or less fortunate people overseas, in their own community, they will have some what we call endemic diseases but most of them they've, they've lived with for generations, etc. But once people start to move, as we see with these poor souls, these immigrants and so on, putting camps, going into substandard accommodation and so on, that's when problems arise. My own son, who's a medic, is investigating one of, one of these instances at the moment. And it's true in veterinary medicine as well. I mean, the biggest problem for a farmer is moving animals to another establishment, to another farm, buying in calves, selling pigs. The moment they leave his or her establishment, they come into contact with other uh, bugs, organisms, viruses, etc., and they are not necessarily familiar with those. So I think this concept that we've been discussing of continuing to feed wild birds because their behavior might change, that is not proven in scientific terms, but it makes sense if we look at humans and animals across the globe. And I do want to come back to your point about the benefits of, of feeding birds. I worry that since our legislation here in Britain, as it is on the continent, as it is in Canada and the United States, and can I add the Canadians are very sensible. There's a website about feeding wild birds in your backyard from Canada. I can send it to you, which specifically says what we've been advocating. Just do it in a sensible way. It's a rather marked contrast to one or two of the others from the United States who seem to have got a bit excited about avian flu, understandably, but they're not approaching it in such a balanced, holistic way. But what I want to say 
is when our own government, when bringing in legislation, quite rightly so, Dr. Christine Middlemiss, the um, the chief veterinary officer, who is an excellent person, excellent vet and, and a very good, humane person, has to follow, I won't say the party line, because the party line has other meanings in our political system, has to follow the government line, which all parties adhere to, that we have got to try and protect our national poultry flock because of economic reasons. There is also the very minor question of humans picking up this virus. And I think, Simon, we ought to say a word about that in a minute. But if one does a cost-benefit analysis at the moment of the benefits of feeding wild birds, even though there's an avian flu epidemic at the moment, against the disadvantages, the benefits overwhelmingly are greater than the than the disadvantage. You articulated it very well, but we know from COVID two years ago, and of course it continues, we know from the concerns about mental health in our community, what you've said about the importance of nature and so on, that feeding wild birds, being interested in natural history, these are so, so important. And it costs this country millions and millions of pounds dealing with people whose lives are not satisfying, et cetera, et cetera. And if feeding birds, observing birds, working with them in a sense, sort of citizen naturalists, perhaps um, citizen scientists recording what they, they see, as I do in my diary nearly every day, these are all worthwhile ventures. And if that helps keep our population happy and healthy, then that has to be a resounding reason for saying, continue feeding wild birds in this country, but do it, as we said repeatedly, sensibly and uh, with sensitivity. Can I say something about humans? Yes, please do, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's right to say, because it's on the DEFRA websites and throughout the world, anything about avian influenza does mention that the current strain of influenza A that's causing these mass mortalities in water birds, in, in seabirds, and of course in domestic poultry, it can very occasionally affect humans. Now, that is a feature of all influenza viruses, and that is partly because they are very easily changed. They're very antigenic structure. They're RNA viruses, and very easily they can change, as other viruses do occasionally. Um, but in this particular case, it means that they can evade the immune system. So just when Perhaps the bird population is getting used to a certain strain. It changes. And so those same birds that have antibodies um, are susceptible to the new strain. But it does mean also, and there's quite a quite an impressive scientific paper about why is this such a devastating outbreak at the moment um, and discussing why it's going into different species of bird, why it's killing so many more than it used to in the past why it's even being picked up in some mammals. It does make the point that we're dealing here with a virus that can jump very easily from one species to another. The only cases that I've been able to trace of human influenza uh, due to HPAI, this, this virulent strain of avian influenza, are a few cases in China where they, these were in poultry workers and they, they keep their birds very intensively there, as we know. And it's a very large and, and very intense population, certainly in their cities. And I did find a reference to one person in Britain who'd once picked it up and one person in the United States. But I mean, when you consider that 15 people are going to be killed on the roads today, that really is insignificant. 
Mm. So that's that's some context for us, really, isn't it? Uh, about the whole, about the position that we're in at the moment. That it seems, it seems to me that everything you've said so far, really, the sensible approach, the sensitivity approach, and good for birds, good for people, not illegal. Still, government guideline you've already spoken about, but actually, there's there is um, probably more harm stopping feeding the birds at this point because birds will go in search of food elsewhere so we could be ironically we could be adding to the virus spreading by stopping feeding the birds so there's plenty to think about here i would have thought we could say that sensible bird feeding at the moment sets a good example to others you know tell your neighbors yes i'm still feeding the birds but i'm doing it sensibly they might even take it on in their own garden but again hopefully doing it sensibly I think there is always a danger that some organisations will say, oh, the precautionary principle, it would be better if everyone stopped feeding wild birds. Well, for the reasons I've said, I think that would be a big, big mistake. But those of us who care for wild birds and in particular are sympathetic to feeding of them ought to be setting a really good example. And hopefully through haste, you could put over this idea why not be a responsible bird gardener or whatever phrase? You're very good at these phrases, uh, Simon. You'll come up with something because it would mean that people feeding birds, whether with your diets or, or someone else's, are doing it in a way that they are showing the community it can be done, as I say, uh, sensibly and it can be done uh, uh, not putting the national flocks of poultry or indeed humans possibly one day at risk, that they are responsible bird gardeners. Okay, John, we've come to you because we trust you. you you're our veterinary advisor. As, as far as we're concerned, you know, w- w- what, what you say goes really when it comes to animal health and we'll always do our very best at Hates. got a very long uh, standing relationship. So can you just summarise what our listeners, what they should be doing and also perhaps set us a couple of challenges really in terms of, you know, what we should be doing to foster this relationship or encourage our customers to become responsible bird gardeners and and set the pace for the rest of the country. That's what we do at Hayes. So over to you, John. Right. Thank you. First of all, could I say that I personally, as a veterinary pathologist and, and as one who has worked with birds for most of my career, remain convinced that the feeding of birds in people's gardens and so on is overwhelmingly beneficial for birds and for the people who do it. And I stick by that, whatever else might be said by me or anyone else later. In the light of that, though, I have said during the course of this podcast, this is a time to um, revisit, as people say now, how we do it. Are we doing it in a, a sensible way in terms of hygiene and so on, how much food we put out, whether we might possibly expose other people's birds to a virus if it's there. So this is a wonderful opportunity for those who feed birds to reassess that and think, okay, I shall make redouble my efforts to keep my bird table, my bird feeders clean, to make sure we haven't got surplus food or bits of food on, on the ground, etc. I will just improve the way I'm doing it because that's worth doing in any case, but it's also good for the birds and will reduce the what I think is probably a very small risk of spread of this particular virus. So I've mentioned things like hygiene and so on, and your listeners will be able to get from haste the information that you already have for them, and I can supplement that with some advice if you wish. The third thing, 
I think it's number three. <laughs> um, the third thing is, I think mm. any of your listeners, uh, customers who are interested in more information on this, ought to, assuming they've got a computer, ought to look at the websites from time to time on the, um, the, the, that are put out by DEFRA, by the government department. And indeed, if you just look at the headlines on the internet of the BBC News, which you get up very easily, if there's something about, about avian influenza, there's very often at the end a couple of, of links there. And so, you know, people who are interested in this and, you, you know, you have many educated customers who are interested in birds for their own sake, not just because they like feeding them, might find that useful. And I think the, the last thing, perhaps, is the one to which you alluded those of us who believe in the feeding of birds, uh, wild birds, and for so long as it's legal to do so, and it is certainly legal to do so at the moment, um, ought to do so, as I've said time and time again, sensibly with responsibility, and, and, and in so doing, show the authorities, who are, my, many of my veterinary colleagues are very, very worried about avian influenza because they're dealing with it in poultry flocks and so on, and I think it's important that they the government, uh, concerned organisations see that those of us who believe in the feeding of birds can respond to a challenge and do it really, really responsibly. Wonderful, John. That's how. Just one more question while I've got you. Yeah, I've what got about a, I've got a an aviary? So an someone's aviary. got an outdoor aviary. Mm. Yes. Now this is. A, I might add lib a bit on this. This is something I I knew this would come up because it's been in some of the. Um, some of the journals. Um, if people have got an aviary, as I understand it, and I haven't bounced it off my lawyer wife yet, the birds might go out into an aviary, but as far as the regulations, the law is concerned, they are captive birds. Therefore, they should really not be in the aviary, they should be indoors, and that's nationwide now, as you know, it was just here in East Anglia. I really have to say, Simon, I don't know what being indoors implies. I mean, some people are able to cover an aviary, as you know, and do so for other reasons, not just because of avian influenza. But I would think they, those birds ought to be inside now, which brings with it all kinds of welfare considerations which concern me. Uh, what I'm really doing, I, 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 this is sort of, um, I'm, I'm searching for the right words. I'm not sure about aviaries, but I think the answer would be they are captive birds and therefore under the regulations they should be inside. It's information that I probably will be able to get for you, but not, not on online, so to speak, at the moment, not, not on the screen at the moment. Understood. That's really helpful. Uh, would you mind, John, if we come back to you from time to time for updates so you can just share what you know the latest news with podcast listeners is that okay because obviously you're, yeah. you're commenting on how things are today situations change so we'll keep coming back to you if that's okay yes and indeed i mean i i said this at the beginning as my sort of statutory gripe whenever i talked to simon king about things uh, and that was that to be honest if i had a bit more time <laughs> i would have much much more at my fingertips so this is an interim thing um, because I, I'm, I'm aware you and your colleagues at Hayes and indeed other people would like some guidelines for today. But I'm open to criticism. If any of your listeners say, hang on, hang on, John Cooper got that wrong. I'm known throughout the world for being the professor who says to students, I think I got this wrong. What do you think about it? And students, particularly overseas in Africa, cannot believe that any professor gets anything wrong. This professor does quite often 
and he's very happy as, as, as to do a U-turn and say, we got it wrong. Professor Cooper, thank you. I think you've done a lot there to help solidify my thoughts, really. This is back to feeding quality foods safely to wildlife. It has many benefits, but we have to we have to think about all those things you've already mentioned. I won't go through them again, but if anybody wants to listen to them again, just go back to the podcast, have another listen. And if there's any questions you want to put to either Hayes or to Professor Cooper, just come back to us, please. But John, Professor Cooper, thank you ever so much. It's a pleasure to chat with you, and thanks for sharing your, your insights with us.